I'm Eileen Dunn and this is The God Slot. Because I gotta have faith. Ooh, I gotta have faith. Because I gotta have The ruling assembly of the Church of Scotland, the country's largest Protestant church, has narrowly voted to allow congregations to admit gay ministers, but only if they specifically elect to do so, in a radical departure from more than 450 years of orthodoxy. The vote is likely to lead to an end to a four-year controversy which has split the church after an openly gay minister, Scott Rennie, was selected to lead Queen's Cross Parish in Aberdeen in 2009. The US State Department has just released its annual review of religious freedom around the world. Eight countries are marked out for particularly egregious violations. Three are officially atheist, two are Sunni Muslim, one Shia, one Buddhist and one Eritrea is designated intolerantly multi-faith in that it recognises three streams of Christianity and one of Islam while persecuting all others. And here in Ireland, funeral directors estimate that 10% of the nearly 30,000 funerals conducted annually are non-religious. Government figures also show that about 30% of the 21,000 weddings annually are outside any church, up from 5% two decades ago. Now here's a question. How many people have walked past the Christian Science Reading Room in Dublin's South Great Georgia Street with no notion of what lies behind the door, perhaps thinking that it's a branch of Scientology? Leslie Gort, international lecturer and Christian Science healing practitioner, spoke in Dublin earlier this evening and will speak again in Cork tomorrow. And she joins us now. Leslie, you're very welcome to the God Slot. Do you frequently come across people who confuse the two, Christian science and Scientology? Yes, it's it's a really common misconception among the public, but actually there is absolutely no connection. Um, Christian science sprang out from its founders' researches in the Bible in the 19th century, and um, it leads back to the Bible. You can't possibly be studying her book her book is called Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures and her name is Mary Baker Eddy. You can't possibly be studying that and not do as I did when I first picked it up, say, does it really say all this in the Bible? You know, and then I had to go and check. Mm-hmm. And of course, um, daily, uh, Christian scientists study the Bible and science and health together and one throws light on the other, really. So there's absolutely no connection with Scientology, which I know very little about, except I do understand it was founded by a science fiction writer. Mary Baker Eddy, she founded this in Boston in 1879. How do you define it? Is it a church? Is it a religion? Is it a cult? How do you define it? It's certainly not a cult because that would elevate a personality to some kind of special status. It's a religion, it's a way of life, it's a way of thinking. It can be practiced by those who don't belong to any particular organization. Uh, To me, it's understanding more of how Jesus' healings were done and Jesus' teachings and endeavoring to live them. There are people all over uh, Britain, probably in Ireland too, who study science and health but don't go to a church because it's 
developing your own sense of your relationship to God, a, a deeper understanding of whom, what you are as the image of God, but not only that, how to make it practical in your life. So what's in then, the book Science and Health that makes it different from the Bible or that would enhance your understanding of the Bible? Well, as I say, the Bible's on every page, but what Mary Baker Eddy does is encourage a spiritual interpretation of the Bible. Without the spiritual sense of the scriptures, the healing meaning is lost. It, it is a, a set of stories and very interesting and valuable stories, but you've got to get beneath the surface and discern the spiritual meaning for us today. As we do that, we find our, our thought becoming more in line with, with the healing power of God. Are we talking just spiritual healing or are we talking physical healing? I'll tell you what, I came into the study of science and health through a physical problem. I was having miscarriages. I had three and I was desperate. I thought I'd never have a child and I was casting around for what to do. I'd asked for an appointment with a specialist, but I didn't feel terribly that something so internal could be dealt with in that kind of way. And then I found Science and Health on our bookshelf at home because my husband had been in the Christian Science Sunday School. And I started reading it. I, I was in pain subsequent to that third miscarriage and those pains just vanished very rapidly. So I told myself, well, I don't know what my answer is, but I know it's in this book. And one day I came across just one sentence that helped me to see that children, all of us, were not uh, just material objects in a material universe, were spiritual beings. And those dear children whom I thought I'd lost, their spiritual identity was still living and moving in infinite spirit, where there's, in the infinite there's no place to get lost. The next time I was pregnant, I sailed right through, even to a totally painless childbirth. And I've got three big men now. Uh, but uh, ever since then, I've turned to the method of prayer explained in Science and Health when I've needed healing. And where does the science come in then? It's reliable, consistent. It can be practiced. It can be demonstrated as you would a physical science or the science of mathematics, for instance, that there are rules and laws there. If you put them into practice, you get the right answer. So it's supposed to be the science or understanding behind the way Jesus healed and, and lived. Now, does this bring you into conflict with conventional medicine or even with the law courts, say like the Jehovah's Witnesses who won't take blood transfusions? Well, it hasn't brought me into conflict with uh, either of those. Uh, the, I think we see it best with relation to the children. There's a law in Britain that if children are ill and their uh, problems not being met very quickly, then you go to the doctor. And I, I would say I had, I've had to go about three or four times to the doctor with my children, but. Uh, Apart from that, if they've had a physical need, and I can tell you some stories about it if you want, if they've had a physical need, I have turned to 
the method of prayer in Christian science and it's been met quicker than going to the doctor. So um, in Christian scientists are law-abiding citizens and I've never found a conflict. Now, as we said at the start, you're a professional uh, Christian scientist healing practitioner. What does that entail? Well, individuals get in touch with me. They either come to see me in my office or they just contact me by telephone. They share their problems, usually physical problems, not always. And I will share a few uplifting spiritual ideas, maybe from the Bible, maybe from Science and Health, maybe just from my own experience or my own thought. And then I'll tell them, well, right, I'll pray about this. And I go away and I pray. And there's a specific method of Christian science treatment. It's solely prayer. There's no hands-on or anything, though I have no objection to that. But that's not how I do it. It's solely prayer. And uh, they contact me later to tell me how they're doing. And I can't claim 100% success rate. I don't think any health practitioner can. But I've seen such wonderful things take place, especially... Eileen, when fear is handled. The thing about Christian science is it points out the influence of thought on the body, the influence of thinking on our experience in general and how to improve outcomes by thinking or praying maybe more deeply with a deeper understanding of whom what God is, whom what we are as God's children. Uh, It puts that mind-body connection, which a lot of people are thinking about now uh, and going into, it shows how thought influences the body, but not only that, what to do about it. Now, you mentioned who God is. I gather Christian scientists believe that God can be both male and female. Yes, God is, so with Christian scientists, God is father and mother because... God is creator, father, and God is infinite love. And that's the mothering aspect of of God's nature. So what's the nature of your talk this evening in Dublin that you've given and tomorrow? What, What are you bringing to people and how many Christian scientists are there in Ireland? Well, uh, just a few, I would think. (laughs) But there's a lot of people who, as I say, study science and health, practice Christian science, but don't belong to the organisation. What I'll be doing in in Cork is um, sharing what may be a deeper understanding of God and our true identity uh, and helping people discover a way to think and pray that helps with all kinds of challenges, including those health challenges. And I'll be sharing ideas in a very simple, accessible way. We've got a PowerPoint presentation as well. So I'll be sharing ideas in a very simple way, but a way that makes them accessible and practical right now. People will be able to go away and do something uh, to improve some aspect of their life. Well, Leslie Gort, thank you indeed for joining us this evening. If listeners would like to know more, you'll be speaking tomorrow afternoon at half past three in the River Lee Hotel in Cork and admission is free. Leslie, thank you once again. Thanks a lot, Eileen. I've enjoyed speaking with you.
A very handsomely produced book came our way recently. It's called Bloomfield, a History, 1812 to 2012, and it documents the results of a meeting held in 1807 in Ireland to consider the expediency of providing accommodation for friends who may be afflicted with disorders of the mind. This was the annual meeting of the Religious Society of Friends, more commonly known as the Quakers, and we're joined now by one of the authors of the book, Glyn Douglas. Glyn, you're very welcome to the God Slot. Thank you. We'll come to the book and the reason for it in a few moments, but tell us about the origins of the Religious Society of Friends. In the 17th century, people in England were very upset with what had happened to church. You'd had church and commonwealth and all kinds of things going on. And in the north of England, people had stopped attending um, church, the national church, and um, were meeting in their own homes and out on the moors, and um, George Fox came amongst them. Um, The Society of Friends sprang out of of this dissatisfaction with the established church, and George Fox's message to these people in the north of England who were seeking new ways um, was that um, there's absolutely no need for any clergy or liturgy, leading from that, you didn't have to pay tithes to the church, for instance, and that got up a few people's noses. Religious and civil liberty for all, and equality for all men and women alike. No titles or marks of servility or superiority. The common usage of thee and thou, which was used in the home, and to your servants, and was being replaced by you in the courts of law. You was what you used with people in authority and Quaker refusal and insisting on calling them thee and thou um, got up a lot of noses too. No taking up of weapons, not even for defence or on behalf of lawful authority. So the just war was not acceptable to Quakers. Honesty in business, this seemed to have been good for business because certainly in Ireland in the 18th century there were a lot of good Quaker businesses and very wealthy people. No taking of oaths and a simple lifestyle. In Ireland we reckon we're a Christian church but we have no creedal statement so that those who don't necessarily agree with the Apostles' Creed etc can come amongst us and... um, we're quite happy to have them. Within the Society of Friends, the interpretation of Jesus Christ ranges from the total acceptance of what's in the Apostles' Creed and in the mainline churches to the other extreme where Jesus Christ was just a very good man. What about the word Quaker? Where did that come from? There were preachers in the early Quaker days who spoke with tongues and um I can't remember the name, the judge's name, but his lordship decided that um, these Quakers had to be dealt with. And the name has stuck, and we're really quite proud of it. I mean, the Religious Society of Friends in Ireland, I mean, you know, that's an awful mouthful. Quakers? Right, that's fine. Okay, well, let's come on then to the book, and it's about Bloomfield, um, and it's about looking after patients who were mentally ill. Tell us about how it all got underway. 
one of the Quaker principles is that um, there is that of God in, in, in every person, mentally ill or not, and that one should um, attempt to um, seek this in everybody that you meet. So what was life like for the typical Bloomfield patient once it got up and running? When you look at the staffing of a hospital today and the number of nurses and nurses' aides, cooks, cleaners, etc., etc., Bloomfield started with, there was a head, superintendent, and the superintendent's wife looked after the female patients, and there would have been a staff of two or three, and the rest of the work was done by the patients themselves. And they they ran a farm there because in the early 1800s, virtually all patients would have been brought up in or around a farm so that they would be well able and not feel themselves too proud to muck out pigs or what have you. Now, things have changed considerably in the the 200 years since it started up and we've had various mental health acts and coming up to today when we have vision for change. How did that impact on the running of Bloomfield? It didn't for a long time. First mental health acts were in the 1840s, but they were really for public institutions, not for private institutions. And Bloomfield was very happy to welcome the inspectors from the government inspectorate that was set up um, as early as the 1840s. And they always had um, nice things to say about Bloomfield. And um, 1948 was really the important health act. And things did start to change after that. After the war, Bloomfield wanted money to modernise, to set up new clinics and what have you. They went to the Society of Friends who didn't have any money at this stage. And really, from that stage on, Bloomfield became just a geriatric home. I would like to think that it was a good geriatric home, but it was a geriatric home for the next 50 years. What about the future for Bloomfield? Well, Bloomfield has moved from its premises um, in in, in Donnybrook and in its new site up in uh, Stocking Lane in the Dublin Mountains. We now have a bus service. We're right on the M50 and really it's quite a good place to be. And what about the Society of Friends? How many of you are there in Ireland now? The Society would have been six to 8,000 at the time of, of Bloomfield being set up and now it's something less than 1,500. Over half of that 1,500 are, live in the north of Ireland so Bloomfield is effectively being run by six or seven hundred members. Well, Glyn, thank you for sharing the story with us. The book is called Bloomfield, A History, 1812 to 2012. It's a very handsome volume, as I said at the beginning, and it's published by Ashfield Press and will be of interest to anyone who wants to know more about the Quakers in Ireland or the history of mental health care in this country. Glyn Douglas, thank you very much for coming in to us. It's almost a year since the 50th International Eucharistic Congress took place in Dublin and in the Diocese of Ferns it's being commemorated with a festival of faith which takes place from May the 31st to June the 2nd. To tell us more we're joined now on the telephone from Enniscorthy Cathedral by Father Billy Swan. Father Billy you're welcome to the God Slot. Thank you very much Eileen. Tell us what's going to happen during your festival of faith. 
Well, the Festival of Faith begins on Friday the 31st. Um, we have the first celebration of First Holy Communion of the Children of St. Patrick's Special School, at which will be present the Eucharistic Congress bell that was in circulation and in the diocese around the country this time last year in the lead-up to the Eucharistic Congress. Then the um, the festival will be uh, will begin, like I said, on that Friday. There will be an opening of an exhibition in Onisgartha Castle that Friday afternoon. And, and at 5 p.m., we have one of the first of our main speakers, which will be Mick, Mickey Hart. He's speaking in the cathedral at 5 p.m. on that Friday afternoon. And the festival will be opened then formally by Archbishop German Martin in an opening ceremony in the cathedral at 8 p.m. on that Friday. Now, is it confined to the people of the diocese or are you hoping to uh, appeal to a wider public? Well, we are sending out a signal, uh, Eileen, that all are welcome. We've tried to publicise it as best we can, including this interview here that we're very grateful for. But anybody who wishes to come to Enniscorti for the, uh, our Festival of Faith is more than welcome to do so. All the programme of events are on our website, stadenscathedral.ie. Now, you're calling it a Eucharistic gathering as well. Is it part of the wider gathering that's taking place this year? It is. Um, it's linking into that whole idea, um, Eileen, of the gathering, um, which is essential to um, what it means to be a faith community, to gather. Um, that's one of the things that we do. We gather as parish, we gather as a community, and we express that visibly in the things that we do. Um, so, yeah, that was a deliberate choice of, of wording for the, the name of the festival, the Eucharistic gathering, linking into the wider gathering in, in other cultural and social events. Now, for people who were at the RDS last summer, for people involved in the Eucharistic Congress, there definitely seemed to be a lift. But have you seen an impact down in Wexford, a lasting impact from the Congress? Um, I would say uh, I definitely think that there was an impact uh, on the people who participated at the time, uh, Eileen. But this is one of the reasons why we're having the festival. It's to reinvigorate um, the memory of the Eucharistic Congress. It's to link in with it and to keep build on the success of its moment on the momentum of of its success and also to bring i suppose the fruits of the eucharistic congress to a more local level down here in wexford down here in the southeast um, you know, all of the you know events took place in Dublin last summer, but it's to reconnect with the success of that and to bring the fruits to a more local level. So would you say for example that mass attendances were up or reception of the eucharist did it have that kind of an impact? I think so, Eileen. Again, I, I think that, you know, the people's experience of church is very much local. Um, and yes, here last year we were linking into the events going on in Dublin, but uh, you, you need to bring church close to people where they're living and to involve them uh, where they are, you know, where they are at and where their people's daily lives are. So we, we very much emphasise this year, for example, the Do This in Memory programme, the preparation of children for the First Holy Communion, their confirmation. Um, we have other Eucharistic-based initiatives going on all the time. Um, so we're building on that all, the t- of, the, all of the time, uh, Eileen. But these things you need to take place. New initiatives need to happen in order to kind of centre us again and uh, highlight the... the um, supreme gift that the Eucharist is really and its role in shaping Eucharistic communities and and us as Christians. Father Billy, where can people get information about your gathering? If you go on uh, our parish website, www.saintaidenscathedral.ie, that's stadenscathedral.ie, and all all the information is there. 
Father Billy, thanks indeed for joining us this thanks evening. Thanks very much, Eileen. And that's it from the God Slot for this week. We'll be back next week with the final programme in the current series when we'll have a panel of four bishops, two Catholic and two Anglican, one of whom is a woman. If you've any questions you'd like to put to the bishops, you can phone us at 012082039 or email us at godslot at rte.ie. It's probably too late now to use the postal system for that particular programme, but any letters we receive from you are always welcome. The address is The God Slot, RTE Radio 1, Donnybrook, Dublin 4. So until next Friday at the same time, Gugudi Jiyashif. Mm-hmm.